All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of 1 Peter. In this session, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. But before we jump into that, just a heads up, I have mentioned several times that we've been working on this thing called the study hub for the listener's commentary, where I will add charts and pictures and background data and maps and links to other resources. And it'll just be a growing thing while I'll continue to add more and more resources there. So if you've ever felt like you're just kind of jumping all over the internet looking for some trustworthy stuff to help you understand a text of scripture or a passage of scripture, well, that's kind of the goal of the study hub is to say, let's bring all that together in one place and put some things that'll just help you read and study the Bible for yourself so that you can learn it, live it, and share it with other people. So I've mentioned that several times. Tomorrow, March 9th, that will be available. It'll be live on the website at the listenerscommentary.com. There'll be a little button up top where you can click sign up and you'll sign up for it there. You'll get a confirmation email, take you back to the site. And from there, you can log in and access all that. So that'll be available tomorrow, March 9th. So a lot of work has gone into getting that up and running, at least to a point where we, we can begin to launch it. And so just wanted to give you a heads up uh, that that'll be available tomorrow. All right. In this recording, as I noted, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. And this paragraph is the conclusion to the section that began in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And in that short little section, 2, 11 through 12, Peter calls believers to live such good lives in their communities that it might draw some members of their community to Christ and would silence the slander of those who oppose them. And we said chapter 2, 11, and 12 was really the header then for this whole section that concludes here in 3, 8 through 12. And what Peter does in between 2, 11 through 12 and 3, 8 through 12 is he gives guidance for various social relationships where the original audience just needs to do that, where uh, they need to live out and demonstrate the goodness of the way of Jesus in their relationships. And so he talks about civic authorities. He talks about uh, servants to their masters, particularly household servants. He talks about wives and husbands, just some standard kinds of relationships that they're going to encounter. And though it may look different in our world, we still have the same sort of social relationships, civic authorities. We maybe don't have servants and we're not servants, but we're employees and we have bosses and all of that husbands and wives. And so whatever our dominant social relationships are, in those places, Peter has said, we need to demonstrate the goodness of the way of Jesus in hopes that it'll draw some people to Christ and that it'll glorify God on the day he visits us. And so we titled this whole big section from 2.11 uh, all the way up through this present section, we titled it, We Must Live God-Honoring Lives in Our Societal Relationships. It, this really reminds us or teaches us that our faith is not really a personal, private affair, although that is sort of the dominant thing we're told to, to think about or believe about faith, and that's just your own personal thing. Religion is just your own personal, private sort of thing. But it's not. And Peter is reminding us of that here and the fact that our faith needs to impact our social life. Uh, it's very much public and it, it's going to impact the way we in, 
interact with people in the public sector. And while it's personal, it's not individual. We are fundamentally social beings, and so our faith must impact all of our relationships, both with fellow believers and with society at large. And so Peter has addressed that in this section. And so having addressed those three specific relationships, he now wraps up this section here in chapter 3, 8 through 12, with a broad call to action about how to conduct ourselves in all of our relationships. So it's a short, short section, but it has big implications for how we live and how we interact with the people around us. And so chapter 3, verse 8 says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, and humble. This general sort of broad statement of uh, what ought to characterize our interactions with others, probably even maybe primarily here, our fellow believers. And so he says, you need to be harmonious. Literally, that word means one-minded. Uh, and this word spoke of a value that was important in Peter's day, even to unbelievers, like unbelieving philosophers and orators regularly spoke of how important it was to be one-minded or harmonious. This idea of being one-minded was the conventional way of speaking of harmony. Like unity of mind, unity of soul was the goal of true friendship. It was the ideal for families. And so here it speaks of being united in mind primarily within the family of God. Like we need to be harmonious, one-minded. He says sympathetic. Uh, our English word sympathetic actually derives directly from the Greek word. It's the same letters. It's the idea of suffering with or feeling together, uh, pathos and soon or what looks like S-Y-M here is the idea of together or with. So you feel together. It's entering into another person's joy or pain to experience it with them. Then he says we should be loving. Uh, and this particular word is the word for brotherly love, Philadelphia, brotherly love, phileo plus adolphos, to love your brothers. It's the kind of love that in an ideal situation characterized families. As I. Howard Marshall says in his commentary that the ideal Christian community produced the same bonds of affection as between brothers and sisters. And so loving with brotherly love and affection calls us to be compassionate. Compassion is the idea of showing care for somebody. It's this willingness, not just being moved or not just even feeling it, but there's this willingness to help, to, to act, to meet the need of somebody else rather than just neglecting them. And then he says that we should be humble in spirit, literally humble-minded. And in the broader Greco-Roman society of Peter's day, humility was not looked on as a virtue. In fact, this word to be humble often was spoken of as something that was a negative. But the Christians said, no, we're like Jesus, and Jesus was lowly and humble of heart. And we need to be that. And so we're going to be humble-minded. And in the New Testament, humility involves our relationship towards God, that we're creatures, we're dependent on him, uh, we're sinful and we're in need of grace, right? We're broken and we're not all uh, 
we're meant to be. And so we need God's help. And there's this inherent humility before the great God of the universe who made us and who is redeeming us and rescuing us. So humility involves our relationship with God in the New Testament, but it also involves our relationships with others. And that's the focus here. It focuses on our relationship to others. And in those relationships, we are supposed to be humble. What does that mean? Well, Probably a variety of things, but I think one of the best summaries of what it means in the New Testament is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. There, the Apostle Paul says that being humble means we don't seek our own advantage, right? We're not trying to advantage ourselves. We're not trying to get our own way. Uh, we don't seek our own advantage, but instead we consider the needs of others ahead of our own and we take a genuine interest in others. And that's what it means to be humble, that we lower ourselves for the sake of others to serve them, to care for them, uh, to listen to them, to pay attention to them. That's Paul's description of it there in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. And so that's probably the idea here, that we're humble in spirit. We have this um, willingness to serve and to care for and to take a genuine interest in others. And the outcome of all of these, like when you're humble and when you're compassionate and when you're loving, that leads to unity, right? And that's really the goal. And as I said, this likely here focuses on our life together, primarily within the Christian church, within uh, with our fellow Christians. Um, in order to demonstrate the way of Jesus in a good light in society at large, we need to live together as Jesus' people in such a way that it manifests these kinds of traits in clear, concrete, visible ways to the culture at large around us. But the sentence actually continues on and shifts towards how we respond to people who wrong us. And certainly that could happen within the church. And so some of what's said in the rest of the sentence will deal with our relationships with our fellow believers, but it primarily focuses on outsiders. And so I think we ought to think of this harmonious and this humility and this compassion as though primarily for our fellow believers, it also should be as much as possible in relationship to society at large and to the other people we have to interact with, whether they're believers or not. And then in verse 9, Peter shifts to, well, what happens when somebody wrongs us? Like, what if somebody ridicules us or insults us? What if somebody does something mean, spiteful, or hurtful to us? How do followers of Jesus respond to that? Whether they're our fellow believers or unbelievers, primarily I think Peter's probably thinking of unbelievers at this point, but either way, how do followers of Jesus respond to that? Well, this is what Peter says in verse 9. He says, not returning evil for evil, or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you would inherit a blessing. Um, this is a chief quality of followers of Jesus. In fact, Peter learned this from Jesus. Listen to the words of Jesus that are found in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. Jesus says, and there he says, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. That's very much the backstory to what Peter says here in chapter 3, verse 9. And in fact, Peter is already in this letter of 1 Peter presented us with the example of Jesus in this regard. 
1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 says, And while being abusively insulted, he, Jesus, did not insult in return. While suffering, he did not threaten, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. So, this idea of not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, this is no optional extra in the Christian life. It is the basic standard of disciples of Jesus. This is how we're supposed to live. This is how we're supposed to interact with people who wrong us. We don't return evil for evil, harm for harm, hurt for hurt, mistreatment for mistreatment, wrong for wrong. We don't do that. Uh, We don't return insult for insult. If someone says something bad about you, uh, don't say something bad about them, right? Um, If someone ridicules you for your faith, well, you don't ridicule them back, right? We don't do that. That's just not how believers act. Instead, Peter says, give a blessing. No insult for insult, no evil for insult. Evil, instead, give a blessing. And the word blessing means to speak well of and even to wish well for. It would would include saying something good about, saying something nice for, praying a blessing on. It would also include doing good for somebody because you want well for them. And you're asking God to bring his favor and his goodness into their life. And that's what you want for them. And so you're being a blessing and you're giving a blessing. Now, what's really important then to notice and what Peter has said here in verse 9 is, it's not merely holding our tongue. Somebody says something mean about us, we hold our tongue and we don't say anything back. It's not merely that. It's not merely restraining our actions. Someone says, does something wrong to us, we don't get angry and restrain our actions and do something bad back to them. It's more than that. Um, Notice here, it's actively doing good for them. You're not just restraining your tongue or restraining your actions. You're being a blessing. You're speaking a blessing over them. And this is the consistent teaching of Jesus and his apostles. This is the pattern we have received from Jesus. We are to be actively kind and actively loving to those who wrong us, who harm us, who even take advantage of us. We're to be uh, actively kind to them. To this, Peter says, we have been called for this purpose, being a blessing to those who are even a curse to us. We have been called, Peter says. And the outcome of all of this, Peter tells us here in verse 9, is that you would inherit a blessing. So be a blessing so that you can inherit a blessing, receive a blessing from God. Then what Peter does in the rest of this paragraph is he supports this teaching with Scripture, specifically with a quote from Psalms 34, verses 12 through 16. And so we need to at least have kind of the big picture of Psalm 34 so that we understand what's going on here when Peter quotes it. Psalm 34 is a poem celebrating how God is good to his people and how God rescues them from all their troubles and how no one who trusts in God will be condemned. That's very appropriate in view of Peter's, right? Like Peter's total teaching. Keep entrusting yourself to the God who judges righteously. Um, Trust yourself to God who is your safe uh, sanctuary and shelter. So Peter here quotes from the middle of Psalm 34. And 
in its context in the psalm, these words that Peter's going to quote describe what it looks like to take refuge in the Lord. Like, the Lord is our shelter. He is our refuge. What does that look like? Well, these are some of the things it's going to look like. And it's a fitting conclusion not only to this paragraph, but really to this whole section that began in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, about being doers of good in town and in your relationship. So here's, here's Peter's quote from the psalm. It begins with four. It's giving the rationale, kind of the reason for why we should uh, give a blessing instead of doing harm for harm. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So this is the first little bit from the psalm. And notice what he says. If you want to uh, enjoy life, that is to love and to see good days, then don't speak evil. Don't be deceitful, right? Like he just told us, don't, don't return evil for evil, insult for insult. Don't speak those kinds of things. Instead, verse 11 he must turn from evil and do good. Peter has said uh, that don't give evil for evil, but give a blessing instead. Do good. In fact, this phrase, do good, clearly connects with Peter's emphasis in this whole big section that he's wrapping up here. Because in this section, Peter has said over and over again that Jesus' people must be known for doing good. This is Peter's basic instruction to followers of Jesus in relation to society at large. Be doers of good. So here, he must turn from evil and do good. And then uh, doing good is further described as the second half of verse 11. He must seek peace and pursue it. Or as the Apostle Paul says in Romans, that as far as possible with you, be at peace with all people. Or the way Jeremiah gives the instructions to the Jewish exiles in Babylon in Jeremiah 29, he says, to seek the welfare and the peace of the city where you live as exiles. Well, that very much connects with Peter's theme. Like, we're, we're sort of like exiles. We're strangers and sojourners here. And so in that vein, we need to seek peace and pursue it with our neighbors and with society at large. And we need to notice, not just seek it, but pursue it, work for it. We do that by not returning evil for evil, but by actively being kind, actively being benevolent, actively being generous, doing good. Then the psalm gives a motivating rationale for this here that's in verse 12. It says this, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against evildoers. And so the motivating rationale for why we should live this way is because it it draws the attention of the Lord. His, his ears hear our prayer. His eyes are towards the righteous. Um, in this section, Peter has told us how Jesus kept entrusting himself to God who judges justly. And then through quoting this psalm, Peter reminds us that God sees his people. He hears their prayers. And so when we live Jesus' way, God takes note of it. He pays attention to us and to our prayers. And so uh, he, by implication, hears us, sees us, is working on our behalf. We are not forgotten. And so through this psalm, Peter reminds us that God is for us. He is the just judge. And in the, the, the broader context of the whole psalm, of which this quote is a part, that God is our refuge and he is the one who takes care of us and we can entrust ourselves to him.
So let's wrap up this short little section just with a brief reflection. When we do good and when we bless those who curse us, it finds favor with God. This is Jesus' way. When we're actively kind to others, even to those who aren't so kind to us, this actually brings a blessing from God. As Peter has said, that we were called for this purpose, to give a blessing so that we might receive a blessing. And Jesus modeled this for us, especially when he went to the cross on our behalf for our sins. Like people who were doing wrong to him, people who were hostile to him. As again, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, that when we were the enemies of God, he died for us. Jesus didn't wait for us to do good for him until he did good for us. He modeled giving a blessing, doing good for people who are opposed to you, for people who hurt you. And so this is the way of Jesus. And as Jesus hung there on the cross, what did Jesus pray for those who killed him? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This is Jesus offering a blessing, praying a blessing for those very people who, who killed him. This is the way of Jesus. This is what it looks like to follow him. We are people who give a blessing, even in the face of cursing, opposition, and hostility.